Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us today at this event to launch the Combating Al-Qaeda in Syria report. My name is Nancy Okail, and I am the executive director of the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy. The Tahrir Institute is dedicated to advising policymakers and the public through rigorous analysis of the Middle East with an integral approach of highlighting and including the local voices in the formation of policies that affect their lives. In this respect, we are pleased to have sponsors today's report and the Al and Combating Al-Qaeda in Syria Strategy Group. The group was formed by Nicholas Harris at the Center of New American Security, and here he is here with us today. Thank you so much, Nick, for all the work that you have done in getting this report and this group together. On behalf of the strategy group, I would like to thank the Atlantic Council for hosting this event and providing us with the opportunity to present the report to such distinguished audience. I would like to thank my team at the Tahrir Institute who worked hard on producing this timely report. The members of this group have lived and traveled frequently to Syria and its neighbors in the Levant. We have studied the dynamics of the Syrian conflict closely, analyzed it, and its impact on the broader Middle East, and are observing how Syrian civil society and politics are being transformed by the actors participating in the war. This report is the culmination of long discussions and debate among our group over the past six months. We have had strong disagreements and have continuously challenged each other's views. That being said, we all agree on the urgency of addressing the drastically deterioration situation in Syria and the threat that Jabhat Fath Hashem, JFS, Al-Qaeda Syrian affiliate, and, which is formerly called Jabhat al-Nusra. And throughout the discussion today, you will hear the panelists using those terms interchangeably, as we also did in the report. While there was no perfect agreement among us, we all agreed that inaction is not an option. This year, the conflict will reach its seventh year of violence. In the past six years, we have witnessed at least 450,000 deaths in Syria, with close to 17,000 casualties just in 2016. The attempted ceasefire agreements to end the bloodshed have failed up to this point, serving primarily the government of Bashar al-Assad to advance its priorities with the support of powerful members of the international community. Assad's failure to address the socio-political and existential demands of Syrians and the continued massacre of his people have given Al-Qaeda a way to claim Syria as its newest and most important safe haven for the organization's ideology. The situation was not inevitable. Many lives could have been saved and thousands of refugees could have stayed in their home country had the international community provided adequate support early on and primarily supported civil society and the opposition groups. The delay and reluctance of the world's major power to act effectively during the early days of the conflict have created a vacuum and a chaotic situation, ultimately providing an opportunity for Al-Qaeda to establish a strong presence in Syria. In this respect, 
We see Al-Qaeda in Syria, or JFS, and the threat it represents to the local Syrian population and globally as only a symptom of the problems that's been plaguing the country. The anti-Assad groups have been alienated, marginalized, and had very little, if any, support to be able to protect and provide basic needs and security for Syrians. Accordingly, our proposed strategy prioritize support for civil society as a necessary element for addressing the roots of the problem. We believe that an exclusively military approach is neither effective nor sustainable. The aim of our strategy group was to provide contextual analysis of the Syrian conflict, Al-Qaeda's growing role in destabilization of the country, and offer recommendations for the United States and its partners to combat this threat and provide some clarity to this highly complex and volatile situation. As you will find in the report, our group outlined four main areas of efforts that needs to be accomplishment in order to overcome the social, political, and security challenges that Al-Qaeda represents. These lines of efforts are mainly robust population protection, strategic U.S. government bureaucratic reform, better coordination of lethal and non-lethal assistance to indigenous counterterrorism actors, and acceleration of U.S. counterterrorism direction direct action tempo. While we humbly recognize that our recommendation will not solve all the problems at hand, we seek at minimum to freeze the current situation and stop the bloodshed. And our, goal, our end goal is to improve the conditions for the Syrian people. When we started the strategy group, Eastern Aleppo had not yet fell under assets control with more volatile changes that went on along the way as we discussed our strategy. Thus, we set out different possible scenarios for how events will unfold in Syria, including whether groups will merge with JFS or Jabhat Fateh or break away from it, so our proposed strategy account for this ever-evolving dynamics. We do recognize that the situation is constantly changing. Yet, the principles and priorities of our recommendation remains the same. Further delay or inaction will only increase the ability of the Assad regime to attack other opposition-held areas of the country, such as Idlib and Hama and other provinces, and will ultimately strengthen the power of JFS or Al-Qaeda establishment in Syria. And here to discuss these issues further, Faisal Aitani, with the Atlantic Council, Charles Lister, with the Middle East Institute, my colleague Hassan Hassan with the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy, Jennifer Kerfella with the Institute of the Study of War, and Sasha Gosh with the People Demand Change. I would also like to recognize other authors who are present here today with us in the group, Hossam Abu Zahir, Bassem Baramandi, Kenan Rahmani, and Ibrahim Asali. Lastly, I would like to remind the participants here in the room and those who are watching through the webcast that they can access the report at the Tahrir Institute websites at www.timeapp.org. And everyone uh, could join our conversations through Twitter via the hashtag AQ in Syria. 
And now, without further ado, I'd like to turn it over to our moderator today, Ms. Margaret Brennan, the Foreign Affairs and White House Correspondent with CBS News. Thank you all for coming, and please join me to welcome our panelists. Thank you, Nancy, um, and thanks to all of you for coming out today because I think uh, this is certainly one of the topics that all of us who cover foreign affairs need to constantly stay on top of because one thing everyone can agree on is that this conflict is not dying out, it would seem. Um, and I want to encourage everyone, uh, as Nancy told you, how to find the policy paper online. It's well worth a read and it's very detailed. And I want our, our writers here um, and our thinkers to really draw out some of their specific prescriptions here. So I want to start very simply, Faisal, with you. Can you characterize, if we are now talking about Jabhat Fatal al-Sham as al-Qaeda in Syria, define the threat, because a lot of the paper talks about this in terms of US national interest. Define the threat that it poses. Yes, certainly, thank you, Margaret. I think on the one hand, uh, the clearest or sort of most superficial but critical from a strategic perspective threat is Al-Qaeda establishing through Jabhat Fath Hashem or in the form of Jabhat Fath Hashem a base of operations where they can recruit, organize, and plan operations that will ultimately target the United States itself or US interests and allies in the region. But something more subtle is going on. I think what, uh, what uh, Jabhat al-Nusra has done is make previously sort of eccentric political ideas part of the mainstream of Sunni Muslim political discourse and ideas about how to protect populations in what I see as one of the most important geographies of the Muslim world. And if the center of gravity of political Islam and Sunni politics in this critical region begins to shift in this direction, then it's going to metastasize and pull in other groups and other parts of the population. And I see that as an intersecting problem, but a separate one that's slightly more complicated as well. Jennifer, when you look at threats, though, is, is that widely understood by policymakers to be the case that this is not just about posing a threat to US homeland, but posing a threat by essentially normalizing extremist belief and, and instituting it? Sure. Well, I think the value that the strategy group is adding to the debate here in Washington is the nuanced perspective that we are offering in terms of the role that Al Qaeda is playing in shaping uh, society in opposition-held areas of Syria. Uh, that said, you know, the U.S. is not new to the threat that al-Qaeda poses. Syria is not the only sanctuary from which al-Qaeda is actively planning attacks against the West, which is why the U.S. has a global campaign to eliminate ISIS attack no or al-Qaeda attack nodes in addition to ISIS, uh, and ideally to prevent al-Qaeda from regenerating or expanding safe havens to attack abroad. Uh, so the near-term threat of attack is real and is known, uh, but what, what we try to highlight in this report is that it's actually impossible to deny Al-Qaeda the ability to regenerate those attack nodes if we do not understand and prevent the way in which Al-Qaeda is rooting itself into society and normalizing the ideology that it uses to justify those attacks. So there's a new generation of Syrian children that is growing up with Al-Qaeda's ideology in some parts of rebel-held Syria as the norm. That's incredibly dangerous from even just a limited counterterrorism counter perspective if you think about the trend line that that signifies in terms of the scale and the volume of attacks that al-Qaeda could be able to launch in the future. And Hassan, this has been one of the challenges for the current administration in terms of that, that line of thought, that, that marbleizing, even acting alongside each other in any way can 
make it more difficult to get to any kind of diplomatic solution to end the war. Are we now beyond that? There's no separation. I mean, you're talking about a very dangerous trend in, in terms of the moderate opposition being somehow subsumed by this, this thought. Absolutely. I, th I, I think it's a... Uh... I can't imagine uh, the current administration or the next one or uh, you know any policy that can uh, address this challenge in uh, in a short like in the short term or even medium term. Uh, that's because Jabhat uh, Fatah Sham has been working on this for the past six uh, five years. Um, so it's going to be very hard, uh, be, you know, because uh, GFS has uh, employed uh, various uh, tactics and, and methods to make sure that uh, it's very close to the, uh, to the Syrian community in which it works. Uh, it, it, it portrayed itself as uh, a part and parcel of, this, uh, of the Syrian uh, rebellion from the beginning. Uh, remember that Jabhat Fatah Sham or, uh, or Jabhat al-Nusra, as it used to be known, uh, hid uh, its uh, affiliation to Al-Qaeda for a long time until the Americans revealed that uh, this was part of, uh, of Al-Qaeda. And then uh, after also Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi from Iraq uh, announced that uh, Jabhat uh, al-Nusra was part of his, uh, of his organization. And that's forced them to uh, you know, kind of declare their affiliation to Al-Qaeda. And that, and that was, was a controversial decision in the US to have declared them to be. A terrorist organization. Certainly, it proved, uh, uh, proved problematic, and also, uh, you know, because the mechanism in which uh, to reach out to the Syrian opposition and work with the Syrian opposi opposition uh, would be complicated because this is a, a terrorist organization, and, I, and, and this is a problem that the, uh, you know, uh, the Washington would have to face for a long time. Is uh, this, uh, you know, being bogged down in the in the description of a terrorist organization? Uh, Jabhat al-Nusra, in the same way that uh, ISIS and other groups, these are not just terrorist organizations. They are terrorist uh, organizations, but they are more than a terrorist uh, terrorist organization. They are also a social movement, uh, social movements. They are insurgent organizations. They uh, they uh, include uh, members who believe uh, in the uh, in the nature and the in the conflict in which they fight, and they are. Part part of the Syrian, uh, Syrian uh, society as well. Sasha, you um, have written a bit about what you see with the current administration's policy being problematic, that, that the Pentagon and the CIA essentially have policies that are on the battlefield at odds with themselves. Mm -hmm. um, what's your prescription in, in terms of whether you can get that in alignment under a new administration? So I think one of the key things to think about when it comes to the fluidity of the Syrian conflict and the U.S. response is that the conflict is outpacing the U.S. government's capacity to respond and be proactive. And in, in essence, um, the last six years of policy has been extremely reactive. So the situation on the ground changes, the United States response, uh, versus taking the reins and providing leadership and basically saying, we're going to be proactive, we're going to shape the nature of this con conflict, we're going to put ourselves in a position to be um, in the driver's seat. Um, and that really just has not happened over the past six years. And the result has been uh, a set of policies that have not um, adequately addressed how all the different pieces, parts of this conflict um, intersect and influence one another. So uh, the military situation on the ground influences the communal societal situation and vice versa. Uh, provision or lack of provision of aid and support to different elements of the moderate opposition means that certain other actors 
bad actors in often cases um, have the advantage. Uh, Al-Qaeda does not have bureaucracy. They don't ask you to fill out forms and paperwork and biodata before they give you support. So the United States need to think about how they're going to respond to a conflict of this nature, both now and in the future, in which all of these things are taken into account. That we have to be more streamlined. We have to, uh, we have to find a better way to allow the different pieces and parts of the US government, because there are many that are working on this conflict, to interact, share information, and work together. And that includes, of course, the Department of Defense, the CIA, the State Department, um, and the National Security Council. Specifically, you talk about reducing restrictions on intelligence gathering. What do you mean by that? I think part of the things that has happened is that the capacity for um, U.S. government assets to have direct visibility on the ground has been greatly reduced in part because everyone is operating out of a neighboring country. They're operating out of Turkey, out of Jordan, out of Lebanon, out of Iraq. It, ma it makes visibility for the U.S. government uh, less, and it requires on a series of secondary sources or, or third, third, so third uh, sources as well to figure out what's going on on the ground. Um, I think the US government needs more visibility on the ground. And they need, they need to be able to assume a little bit more risk, but, but provide uh, primary US assets on the ground more directly, uh, whether that be in country or closer to the border. I mean, often, um, you know, if the security situation in southern Turkey at the border is bad, US government assets will be pulled away from the border. And that ultimately means that um, the ability to understand directly what's going on on the ground is diminished, and that's a problem. Charles, is the, is the US the body, the, the country that should be in the leadership role on that? Or six years in, are there other countries that are more in the driver's seat? I think it's a tough question. I mean, the situation's clearly changed since 2011, 2012, 2013, when for sure the United States was in a potential position to assume that kind of primary role. And the conditions on the ground, the power balances on the ground, not just between different opposition groups and Al-Qaeda, but also between the regime and its backers and the broader, broad scope of the opposition have changed. So it does, it does definitely diminish our, our potential to assume a, a primacy role. Um, but I certainly think there are still things the United States can do. I think we need to recognize um, that despite the fact that the Russian government intervened in September 2015, or because of that, we have assumed, therefore, that Russia rules Syria. There's nothing we can do either without Russian permission or without getting into a full-on conflict with the Russian government. And I, I'm not convinced that's necessarily where we stand as of now. I think developments leading up to and during the fall of Aleppo showed quite clearly that the Russian government was incapable at times of determining conditions on the ground when it was having to come up with, come up against Iranian-backed militias and also regime forces who more often than less seemed to be unwilling at times to follow instructions from the Russians. So I think there are at least opportunities. I'm certainly not now calling for the United States to invade the, the Syria. I think probably the United States' biggest potential now is in the diplomatic arena um, and in the extent to which it can continue to protect what remains of the moderate opposition so as to ensure that what remains isn't just Al-Qaeda. Yes, I think we have to sit here today and say that the Assad regime is winning the conflict, but it's a million miles away from having won it. 
stability is not going to come back to Syria for a very long time. And with that being the case, the only victor, if things continue on their current trajectory, is going to be Al-Qaeda and potentially the Islamic State as well. And so for exactly that reason, I would say it's definitely not too late to step in in certain strategic directions, diplomacy, counterterrorism, and protecting civilian lives and ensuring, as I say, that what remains of the moderate opposition remain at least viable as potentially future counter-terrorist forces. But to clarify, you mean diplomacy backed by the credible use of force? Uh, y yes, and that's one Not thing that's... Not the track that's, that we've... Yeah, exa exactly. And that was the biggest shortcoming of the, of the political track that the Obama administration has run, both prior to the bilateral relationship with the Russian government or the attempt at one, um, was the idea that we were able to negotiate a cessation of hostilities or a ceasefire in Syria that was based entirely on trust of which we know full well there is no relationship of trust between the opposition and the regime, between Iran and the opposition, between Russia and the opposition, et cetera, et cetera. And it was, sadly, that lack of an enforcement mechanism or consequences for violating ceasefires that have meant what we've seen has just been a ceasefire for a period of weeks, then it breaks down, then a few months later after 10, 000, you know, 5,000 more people have died, we try again, and then we try again. We're not actually getting anywhere. And that's the key stumbling block that I think we'll continue to face until brave enough leadership in Washington and in other allied capitals is willing to do what it takes to actually take a firmer grip on, on the trajectory of the conflict. Jennifer, I saw you wanted to jump in. Uh, do you want to follow up on that idea Charles had there that perhaps Tehran rather than Moscow would have been the country to be negotiating with on this? Sure. I actually also wanted to connect back to something Sasha was saying, which I think is an important thread. Um, that. Charles is absolutely correct in that the influence that the U.S. did have on the ground within the Syrian opposition has largely degraded uh, because in some instances of the American inability or unwillingness to protect local forces um, from al-Qaeda, um, from the Assad regime, from the Russians, et cetera, but also because of the larger approach that the United States has taken to the conflict, which has actually failed to reduce violence or make a negotiated settlement more likely. Um, but I'd like to pivot back to something Sasha alluded to, which I think is incredibly important, which is that the U.S. has relatively less influence on the ground, but nor can the United States easily shop for solutions in terms of what regional states prefer to see happen inside of Syria. The situation, the war has gotten so hot and so degraded that regional states simply cannot provide the answers for the United States with respect to this problem because in many instances they have different priorities. So Turkey is a great example where Turkey may have more intelligence uh, estimates of Jabhat Pata-Sham or other elements of the Al-Qaeda project inside of Syria, like Ahrar al-Sham, but has a different perspective on that threat than the U.S. does. And this is the realm in which I do think it is critical for the United States to develop our own intelligence picture, our own assessment of what American interests require and what stability inside of Syria requires, and then ask the hard questions about which regional actors are actually willing and able to play a constructive role in reaching a stable outcome. In that regard, I think Iran is one of the, the biggest direct belligerents in this war. Um, in addition to the Russians on behalf of the Assad regime, the Turks, of course, are now also a belligerent in this war. And they're fighting directly against ISIS for now, but they're also fighting the primary Amer American ally in the anti-ISIS fight, the Syrian Democratic Forces, out of opposition to the Kurdish element within those forces. So I do think we have to recognize American limitations at the outset, but also recognize the limitations of the theater more broadly and be realistic about what we can expect to achieve in the near term. In the paper, you all argue that um, essentially Iran 
is strengthening al-Qaeda on the ground. That, that's an argument that you make. Do you want to explain that a little bit? Listen, there's a, there's, a, there's a small direct accusation to make with regards to Iranian policy. It's unquestionably the case that Iran has released senior al-Qaeda figures who had been under house arrest, most of whom traveled through Iraq and into Syria. Many, some of them have been killed in US drone strikes since, and some of them are still alive calling the shots for, on behalf of al-Qaeda's central leadership. So there is that. But I think the broader point we're trying to make in the report is that Extremism in Syria is going to last so long as the justification for their narrative lasts. And the entire revolutionary narrative, if you want to call it that, in Syria is based entirely on the fact that the Assad regime still exists, is still repressing its people, is still killing its people on a daily basis. And that's not going to go anywhere. And you can make the same argument about the rest of the armed opposition. They might be displaced and evacuated to different areas. Some individuals may very well flee the country. But the cause for which the opposition is fighting isn't going to go anywhere. And the, but the concern is, the longer the conflict goes on, and the longer it takes for the rest of the international community to get that iron grip on the conflict and impose a ceasefire that is actually enforced, the longer it takes us to do that, the more that the extremist narrative Will become, will become the dominant one. I don't think we're actually quite there yet, but we're traveling in that direction, where people on the ground in different areas of Syria are increasingly willing not just to accept al-Qaeda operating within their midst, but are actually willing to overtly support the fact that they are in their midst. And I think the reason why I say we're not quite there yet, we've seen it pretty clearly actually just recently that the fall of Aleppo saw the displacement of thousands of people from that city into Idlib. The regime quite clearly, I think, had a strategy of throwing all of its adversaries into one province. And I think the consensus amongst the analytical community was that that was going to result in what the regime would try and call jihadistan and try and call upon the international community to help take Idlib. But actually, surprisingly, what's happened is that because Aleppo city specifically was actually one of the few beating heartbeats of the more moderate opposition in northern Syria when it actually fell, a lot of these displaced people, civil activists, people who run media stations, have arrived in Idlib and started talking to their radio stations, publishing articles saying, this place is hell. You know, we don't want to live under this Islamist rule, under all of this repression. We don't want to live where our wives are being told how to, uh, how to dress and when we have to pray five times a day when in Aleppo we didn't have to. And I think this is an interesting dynamic in what message that sends to Al-Qaeda, their, their project of socializing opposition communities into accepting their presence within their midst is not complete yet, which is also a reason why I would say it's not too late for the United States and its regional allies to, to do something to prevent that worst case scenario. Faisal? I want to modify a bit the point about Iran being behind Al-Qaeda or Assad causing Al-Qaeda. It's something that gets thrown around a lot among the community that's sympathetic to the opposition. It's something that bothers those who have the opposite point of view. The thing is, it's not that they are creating or causing one thing or the other. What's happened in, these, in this part of, of the world, in this, part of, in this part of the Levant, is that there's a profound loss of political legitimacy among some parts of the Sunni Arab population. They no longer have an answer to the questions of how do we protect ourselves from all kinds of violence, whether it's the regime or otherwise, and how do we organize ourselves politically. These ideas of Salafi jihadism are not new. They've been around for a long time, and they've been evolving for a long time. But the reason they 
now have space to operate in is because there is no other satisfying story that anyone in Syria, particularly within the opposition, can tell to one another and to the people about what kind of answers they can provide and how they can protect the population. I think as long as there is a lack of population protection and the lack of governance answers, there will be this vacuum and it will be exploitable by extremists. Even if the regime wins the war, that vacuum will still be there, although there will be an army in these places. Even if the regime loses the war, the question will not have been answered overnight. Because if, they, if these people have no way to protect themselves and govern themselves, the field is still wide open to whoever wants to do best. And the group with a strong ideology, foreign support, cohesion, and good military capability against the regime, but also against other groups in the opposition, and this is very important, that is the group that's going to carry the day, however long it takes. Mm -hmm. um, but to come back to the point on Iran, you all further flesh out in the paper that you believe that by utilizing Hezbollah, essentially Iran's creating a little statelet uh, within Syria. That's, that's a base of operations for them. So uh, is that one of the basis, uh, one of the arguments here then, Hassan, or, or whoever wants to answer the question, for you arguing why the next administration needs to pay attention to this? I mean, is that, I, I hear your point. It's an effective talking point. Why did you put it in this paper? Because you disagree a little bit as to the degree of Iranian uh, influence, it sounds like. Do you want to defend my point or let talk? If you jump uh, in, I, don't, I want I, you guys I, to, if I you disagree, disagree with you do it. it. Uh, I think the Iranian influence is there, and I think what the Iranians have taken, a fair chunk of it, they are not going to give back unless there is a military confrontation, full stop. Uh, but I just think that this is the beginning of the problem yeah. for the opposition. Mm -hmm. And it needs to be addressed before the problem can be addressed, but it isn't the problem. That's mm -hmm. all I'm saying. Yeah, and we're not conspiracy theorists. I mean, we're not saying Iran is literally sending money to Al-Qaeda. It's just merely the fact that their support for the Assad regime and the fact that the Assad regime is still in place empowers the narrative that Al-Qaeda has used to grow its strength in Syria. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it, it, I, I think in that sense, I think w m everything what we've said, even though it's different, is very much in agreement. I think one of the other things to think about also is at the beginning of the revolution in 2011, um, it became very clear very quickly that the Assad regime didn't have a response to a peaceful movement. They know how to deal with violence. They do not know how to do it, deal with a peaceful movement. And they felt that the way to survive was either to provoke a violent reaction from the opposition, which they could use to delegitimize it, or bring in a sectarian angle that would pit different pieces of the Syrian community against one another. Uh, they did both, and they succeeded in provoking both. Um, and part of that, if you look at the strategy of the regime, part of it is bringing sectarian militias from Iraq, bringing Hezbollah, bringing groups to basically tell the Sunni majority of the Syrian, uh, of, of Syrian society, um, we're at war with you, and we're going to bring this war to you. And I think on the opposite side, it, you know, people at the beginning really had deep conflict about whether to engage in the use of force to protect themselves or not. They wanted to keep the opposition peaceful and a peaceful movement, but it became so difficult to do that when there was disappearances and arrests and killings of all the human rights defenders and activists and people who espoused a more moderate viewpoint. And so, in essence, uh, the, uh, the Assad regime has really created 
um, constraints in terms of who has come to the forefront of leadership in terms of the opposition. And that's also created um, a sectarian narrative, which Iran has then helped uh, to push forward, again, through the types of groups they've sent to help prop up the Assad regime. Look, I also think we're making, if I may, a, a pretty basic argument um, as well, which is simply that the Iranian presence and expansion in Syria is inherently destabilizing in the region, among other things, because it incentivizes the Saudis to choose more effective elements within the opposition to back, which tend to be the Salafi jihadi elements of the opposition. Um, but I would also make the point that Iran and Salafi jihadi elements of the opposition benefit from each other's presence on the battlefield. Um, the, the presence of, and strength of Salafi jihadi groups allows the Iranians to claim that if they weren't fighting in Syria, they'd be fighting in Qom, and that this is actually defensive. On the other hand, al-Qaeda gets to use Iran's presence inside of Syria to claim that this is a sectarian war, that al-Qaeda is the only defender of Syrian Sunni Muslims and also Sunni Muslims globally, and that therefore the opposition should submit to its leadership. And in so doing, actually imposing retroactively a sectarian narrative onto a war that began as a peaceful uprising and that only turned violent and increasingly sectarian because of the way in which, as Sasha, Sasha has indicated, the Assad regime responded and because of the way in which uh, the Iranians forward deployed in such massive numbers uh, to support that war effort. Um, we are going to get to questions shortly, but I want to come to a point you make um, in the piece. I mean, we heard from the uh, potential next Secretary of State yesterday, Rex Tillerson, testifying, and he made the point that he hadn't discussed Syria yet with the president-elect. Um, you are arguing that that very much needs to be um, on the president's inbox, if not at the very top of his inbox. One of the things you mention here is the use of State Department assets, um, putting them at the Syrian-Turkish border and the Syrian-Jordanian border. What exactly are you looking to do with U.S. diplomats, given that up to this point there's been hesitation to really put any Americans on any kind of front line uh, in Syria? Sure. Whoever wants to take sure, it. Sure, I'll take that. I think, I think the, what I've seen from my experience of working with the U.S. government, with State Department, USAID, is that you have a lot of people who, frankly, a lot of FSOs, a lot of people who are emotionally very involved with this conflict. I mean, they really truly believe in what they're doing and they're trying desperately um, to make the policy work in a way that helps the Syrian people and they've been coming up across numerous bureaucratic roadblocks including their constraints and their ability to travel to the border, talk to people, understand significantly the challenges that uh, this conflict poses both to US policy but also to um, the wider region, um, if there's any security risks at all, um, the U.S. government pulls them out. And a lot of them at the, that I knew at the beginning, they had a lot more freedom of movement in, in Turkey and in Jordan, and that freedom of movement has pretty much gone away. And they've repeatedly told me, you know, if we can go and talk to people in person, we can more effectively advocate for a different pivot in policy if need be, but if we have to rely on these secondary and tertiary sources to understand the situation on the ground, we can't make that effective argument. And so I think, given just my, my experience with talking to a lot of those FSOs, they're willing to take the risk if it means they can do their job better. I understand, though, from the perspective of the US government, that has that, that's problematic. So there, there should be a solution for this one way or the other. Mm -hmm. 
Charles, do you seem to want to jump uh, I was going to say something on a slightly broader policy point. I mean, the reason why the incoming administration should look at Syria, or the reasons, ought to be clear. Um, I think it's in, in some sense unfortunate that the outgoing administration, in particular its National Security Council, the consensus position was there weren't enough reasons in Syria for us to do more than we already are. Um, and we've done a fair bit fighting the Islamic State. We've done, until the last couple months, virtually nothing to combat Al-Qaeda's presence in Syria. And I think that's unfortunate, but largely the result of the fact that for those, that period of four years or so, Al-Qaeda wasn't overtly, for the vast majority of that time, overtly or covertly looking to attack the United States. And I think that's, that's a broader policy lesson which, um, whether or not it's in the report, I forget, ought to be made that when we're looking at countering terrorism and the rise of extremism or violent extremism abroad, policy shouldn't just be dictated necessarily um, upon whether a group or a movement or an organization or individuals within a conflict zone are looking to attack the United States homeland. But there is a broader interest-based assessment that needs to be made. One of them is that, for example, Al-Qaeda's relative success in Syria has seen its ideology and its narrative mainstreamed not just in parts of Syria, but also in parts of the region. That's a deeply dangerous reality for US policy, not just tomorrow, but for 10 years from now. Um, also, continued instability more broadly in Syria means the collapse of one of what was one of the most important states at the heart of the Middle East. The rise of Hezbollah has, has, has been pointed towards and other Shia militia don't just mean that we lose uh, any potential future leverage in Syria, but Hezbollah and some of its senior leadership are already talking about their next war with Israel. And they have amassed such a huge amount of weapons through Damascus, specifically through Syrian territory, that some, some assess, uh, assess that they have uh, a greater military capability than some small militaries in Eastern Europe. Uh, and this is something that, not having done more in Syria, we have allowed to fester and develop. And I guess that's, that's, the, that's the broader point I'm trying to make. And, and, and finally, the, the Russia-Iran angle is clearly something the Trump administration is going to have to deal with if, if, if the president-elect is serious about trying to seek a rapprochement with the Russian government. I think he will very quickly realize that by seeking a rapprochement with Russia, he will be emboldening Iran, which the vast majority of his potential appointees seem to take a particularly hard line against. And that difficulty of squaring that circle is going to be a real challenge that he'll face very early on on Syria specifically. I would just underscore that, if I may, only to say that Syria is not simply a civil war that is tangential to American interests. If that was ever true, it's certainly not true anymore, because Syria is now the battleground on which regional and global struggles for power is being fought. And part of that is the, the tragedy of the war thus far, which is that the moderate Syrian opposition that wanted to negotiate with Assad, and even the regime's own military force, have been so degraded that neither side continued to fight this war without bringing in external sources of support, whether that be the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, or Al-Qaeda, or in some cases, ISIS. So this is no longer just a civil war. It's much, much bigger than that. So I think the real question is not whether Syria should be on the top of the new administration's agenda, but whether all of these regional and global issues are, in fact, well understood and well understood in terms of how they are being played out in this particular battle space uh, within you know, former Syrian territory. Hassan, do you think there's an audience for that? Yeah, absolutely. I, th you know, I, I think there's a, there's a big problem here, which is, um, uh, much of the policy, the American policy, and the way uh, people talk about Syria today uh, is really uh, wishful thinking. 
uh, is, uh, for example, there are some people who wish, uh, who hope that uh, the Russian involvement in Syria uh, is going to help uh, resolve at least some part of Syria, the kind of maybe the western side of Syria. Uh, Idlib uh, is the only place now that, uh, that where, where groups operate, and it's only 1.5% of Syria, so it's a small uh, problem. Uh, maybe the United States doesn't have to worry about it, uh, about maybe the Russians have a solution to maybe get rid of uh, the rebels there. But I think uh, that over, overestimates and overstates kind of the the, the, the ability of the Assad regime to, uh, to really uh, resolve that problem for uh, the international community, uh, but also that ignores the resilience of groups like uh, Jabhat al-Nusra. And I think, Jabhat, just to go back to the group that we we're talking about, uh, in terms, as an organization, if you look at it today, uh, it, it's cramped in Idlib mostly. It's a small organization compared to how it looked in, in August. In August, uh, because of the leadership of Jabhat al-Nusra or Jabhat Fath Hasham uh, in Aleppo, uh, the leadership of the rebel, uh, uh, like of the insurgency to break the siege around Aleppo, Jabhat al-Nusra looked so important, so uh, because the rebellions relied on it uh, immensely. Uh, if Jabhat al-Nusra went away or was uh, or collapsed, uh, Aleppo would collapse. But today, it looks it looks much smaller than. Uh, a few months ago, but then if you look, if you dig deeper, uh, something else has happened. And I am told by various uh, kind of uh, sources, jihadi sources in, inside Syria, that uh, Jabhat al-Nusra has already dispatched uh, some of its really uh, uh, prominent uh, uh, operatives into the areas where Turkey is operating, and these guys are not fighting. They drop their arms and they are fighting there. They're trying to make money because they've heard that uh, there's a plan uh, of uh, reconstruction and building uh, in eastern Syria or northeastern Syria, to be specific for now. Uh, they have a plan, and the plan, uh, we are told, uh, is to uh, move uh, into eastern Syria because Idlib is too small for them. Uh, I, for example, I asked one, one of their senior uh, members, I said, what about uh, southern Syria? near Israel or Jordan, What's, uh, uh, is there a plan there? And uh, he said uh, it's a tricky territory there. So they, are, they, they, th they, they say they, they can move to the, the south, but it's for them, it's easier for them to go to, the, to where the biggest vacuum today is. So I think, just to go back to the wishful thinking, the US singled out uh, the areas where ISIS uh, operates and wanted to solve one problem in Syria, one symptom of the Syrian conflict in Syria, which is ISIS. And they left the rest of, the, of Syria to someone else. It's not our uh, fight, it's someone else's civil war. And I think that's dangerous because uh, every every, everywhere where ISIS is, is ceding territory, Jabhat al-Nusra and al-Qaeda is trying to go back. There are even reports that uh, al-Qaeda is, is thinking of going back to Iraq. So I think it's dangerous to really uh, to kind of think about the Syrian conflict as uh, a set of problems that you can solve and can contain uh, and you can uh, control for the time being. You do call for a greater use of US military force. All of you agree on that. Um, one of the specific things you call out is the need, and you briefly mentioned this earlier, but the need to protect the civilian population. Can you be more specific on, on how you want to do that? Anyone? I, uh, the, basis, the basis of that was actually to resume the negotiations that had been ongoing over the past few months over ceasefires, or cessations of hostilities in particular areas with particular rules of enforcement, but this time to do it with the credible threat, backed by the credible threat of force, ideally with a partner on the other side, 
Russia, for example, I'm not succumbing to wishful thinking, but we have to put that on the table as a possibility. If not, then through very clearly defined, defined rules and very clearly, very clear, transparent rules of engagement and what would happen if rule X were broken, uh, clause B was violated, and what the price would be paid, would be paid on the other side. And this was never about going in and destroying the enemy if a ceasefire broke down. It was about extracting a price for violations of ceasefires so that they can hold. Over the past few months, we've had ceasefires that have been reached. Whether or not we assumed there was goodwill on the Russian side, what ended up happening was they were violated at the local level, but mostly by the regime. Not only, but mostly by the regime. Why? Because the regime was doing well militarily and had absolutely no reason to respect the ceasefire. And if I were done, that's exactly what I would have done. So we can't come up with a diplomatic formula and expect the other side to behave irrationally. And for it to become rational, there has to be a threat of force. The key, the key theme underpinning the reason why we advocate the US taking that, it's not really a risk, but certainly putting more, more energy into the game in order specifically to protect civilians is because this is, if there, we've talked a fair bit and we write a lot about all of the strengths of Al-Qaeda in Syria and how they've adapted in such a way as to be more accepted than Al-Qaeda elsewhere in the world has previously been. But if we've learned one weakness of Al-Qaeda, it has been that it has very little leverage over local populations or other opposition groups in times of stability. Mm. And we've really only ever learned that once, which was in the cessation of hostilities that happened early last year, or early this year, sorry, uh, last year, <laughs> 2017. Um, uh, and during that period of time, and it was only several weeks old, mm -hmm. but you know, we happened on, on one Friday, the protests, uh, you know, we, we saw the resumption of weekly protests across Syria. And in Idlib, in the kind of heartland of al-Nusra, we saw people take to the streets in certain towns which had long been seen as al-Qaeda strongholds, protesting not just against the Assad regime for the first time in several years, but against al-Qaeda. And this posed a huge challenge to Nusra at the time. And they kind of withheld and didn't do anything the first week. The second week it happened, they fought back. They arrested some of the protest leaders. They got into clashes with local Free Syrian Army units in, in a specific town. And that little pivot point, I think, ought to have taught us one thing, that if there is any potential to uproot or to belittle the narrative that Al-Qaeda has latched onto in Syria, it is to make sure that they don't have a military conflict to use as a source of legitimacy. They, their governance is not popular and it's also not particularly effective. They're not like ISIS. They can't present themselves as effective governors of local populations. They haven't expended particular amounts of energy into doing that. It's only the fight on the ground, as was described, when they tried to break the siege or when they temporarily broke the siege of Aleppo, they looked like heroes. But now in Idlib, when all of these people have suddenly arrived, they see what life would be like under this organization and they don't like it. So again, as I said earlier, we haven't reached that point yet where Nusra or JFS has turned the people over to its side. And that's a critically important point to note in this report and for future US policy. It's not yet, yet too late. Um, I want to get to questions, but Hassan, did you have a Yeah, a just point? one thing related to uh, like population and importance of population. If there's one lesson uh, we should have learned from Iraq is that only the uh, social antibodies can, uh, can eject uh, uh, these organizations. And I think there is a, there is a, uh, we are edging towards, uh, what, uh, uh, towards a, the point where ISIS started to su succeed in Iraq, which is basically in 2011 and onwards. 
uh, uh, which is basically eroding the success of the, uh, you know, the surge and what, uh, what happened with the tribes and so on. So you're familiar with that. Uh, and they started to erode the success by, by, by making sure that no Sunni insurgent organizations is viable enough to replace ISIS. And once they get rid of uh, insurgents, who are the only people who can actually fight it and can check its in, uh, military influence and can go after it uh, with the help of uh, whether the Americans or the Iraqi government. And uh, ISIS succeeded in doing that after 2011. If you look around today in Iraq, and if you are an Iraqi who believes in violence and doesn't believe in Iranian-backed militias or, militias or the Iraqi-dominated, sorry, the uh, Iranian-dominated, uh, uh, influenced uh, government in, in Baghdad, you would, you would look around and try to find insurgent organizations. And the only viable organization that you can uh, bet on uh, is ISIS. We are, I am afraid, that we're reaching that point in Syria where the only viable organizations, uh, say three years from now, would be groups like Jabhat al-Nusra or Fatah al-Sham, sorry, uh, or, or ISIS or, uh, and groups like that. That's dangerous. The U.S. should be concerned about, uh, should be, the priority should be really to protect these assets. They might not be our assets as in your assets. They're not, they might, might not be uh, perfect Democrats, but it's important to shape the, uh, the insurgency and transform the insurgency in a way that these turn into antibodies against extremism. So I think an important, if I may very briefly, mm -hmm. element of the report that I'll highlight is that we included a red teaming section um, that reflects some of the sort of vociferous debates we had as a strategy group around this topic. Uh, this is an incredibly difficult problem set. Uh, I think what we are intending to get at with our recommendations that concern the use of force is the observation that this is a very difficult problem set, this is a very vicious war, and that American military force is likely going to be necessary in some form in order to affect the kinds of behaviors that we intend to affect. Whether that is Assad's intentional use of starvation and intentional bombing of civilian populations, or Al-Qaeda's attacks against civil society members, et cetera, or groups that facilitate Al-Qaeda's attacks against uh, peaceful protesters, as, as the example Charles highlighted in Maratin Uman during the cessation of hostilities um, exemplifies. So I think we're, we're actually quite humble about what our, our strategy offers. This is not a full solution to the Syrian civil war, but it is an observation that this problem is incredibly difficult. It is spiraling in a negative direction so fast that we believe that it is imperative to act soon, to preserve the relative success that we have, which is that JFS, Al-Qaeda, has not yet converted the Syrian population or the entire Syrian opposition, but that we, the US has to start acting soon to start reshaping trends, as Hassan mentioned, and to start affecting behaviors. And the only way to know exactly what kinds of steps will affect behaviors is to start to engage in this problem set. And so we're kind of, I think, adverse to the notion that the United States needs to sit and perfect and, and come up with some master plan for the entire Syrian conflict because the situation is so degraded um, and, and time is running short. So I would offer that, um, okay. that framing as well. Um, well, you've heard uh, the arguments and the explanation for the, the positions, and I want to open it up to the audience. Before I call out, I do want to acknowledge those um, watching via webcast, and you can submit your questions via Twitter at AC Mideast, hashtag AQ in Syria. Um, so we'll be watching that Twitter feed and try to get you included in the conversation. Um, can we have some of the mics here? to the middle of the room, this gentleman. If you would stand, say your name and your organization, and try to be concise so we can get in as many questions as possible. Thank you, Irv Chapman. I'm Bloomberg. 
the, I'm sorry, can you speak up a little bit? Yeah, Irv Chapman. Uh, the question, uh, you've, you've discussed the Syrian opposition in capital letters. Uh, the president and his people have described the Syrian opposition as a disorganized, militarily ineffective, unable to coalesce, uh, unable to guarantee that weapons supplied won't fall into the wrong hands. And most of the domestic criticism of President Obama has been aimed not at that at all, but at his uh, settling for uh, the evacuation of, of uh, poison gas and not sending the Air Force in after he uh, did that red line. Would you comment on the above? Was that aimed at anyone in particular up here? Whoever wants to take it. Um, when you guys were writing about the Syrian opposition, who did you have in mind in particular? Is there still one standing after the fall of Aleppo is another way to put the question. Yes, there is. Uh, the US government still has several programs that support specific opposition units in north of northern Syria and in southern Syria and in eastern Syria in the form of the Syrian Democratic Forces. Um, these units have been working with US government for years. They're vetted. They're being provided consistent support, both lethal and non-lethal. And um, we know everything about them, pretty much. The US government has no excuse to say that they don't know who they're dealing with. They do. Uh, these groups have been effective. They have fought both ISIS. They have fought uh, other uh, extremist groups that supported ISIS. Um, and they have taken on JFS on occasion. And they will continue to do so um, when the opportunity arises. And they also consistently have to fight the Assad regime at the same time as they're fighting ISIS. So uh, from my perspective, yes, we know who we're dealing with. We know who's available. We know where they stand. Um, what we have not done, I think, well enough is to provide uh, better capacity for them to coalesce, coordinate, and work together. Some of that is bureaucracy here in the United States. And some of that has to do with the other international actors involved in the conflict. Look, I, would, oh, oh, go ahead. I, I would add to that only briefly to say that you know, <coughs> we, we can dismay at the relative lack of organization or arguably effectiveness of some of the Free Syrian Army elements, which contributed actually to their disintegration under al-Qaeda pressure and the pressure of the Assad regime. But it is nonetheless the case that in order to secure the American homeland, to prevent attacks on the US and its allies, there has to be local resistance to those organizations. The Syrian people have to decide that they are unwilling to continue to allow, or in some cases to support, al-Qaeda to operate in their areas. Until or unless that kind of local resistance is achieved, the US will not have achieved our national security objectives with respect to al-Qaeda. So these elements might not be as unified as they should be, or ideally could be, but they are nonetheless the key component, actually, in defeating this organization and organizations like it in the long term. It's these elements of the population that must ultimately replace ISIS in eastern Syria and must also be the force for change against al-Qaeda in the West if, if the homeland is to be secured. Did you want to add on? Let's move on. OK, here in the middle, this gentleman. Thanks, uh, Max Blumenthal, alternate. I heard the term moderate opposition thrown around a lot today, and I didn't see any moderate uh, rebel groups named in the report. Um, however, Charles Lister in 2015 produced a list of some 70,000 moderate rebels. On that list was Nouradine Elzenki and uh, Jabba Shamia. 
Um, Nora Dean Alzenki, now it's pretty well known, they're a Salafist, explicitly anti-democratic group that has worked with Al-Qaeda in eastern Aleppo. They were um, documented firing on civilians trying to flee eastern Aleppo. They were um, filmed, videotaped themselves, beheading an adolescent boy, Abdullah Isa. And this is a group that says its goal is to build an Islamic state. Uh, goal shared by Al-Qaeda. Then you have uh, Jabba Shamia, which was just exposed in the Financial Times for selling ISIS fighters to Turkey at $50,000 a head. Um, uh, Financial Times also reported that over 50% of ISIS defectors are going to the rebels in places like Idlib, which your report calls for the U.S. to protect. Um, so my question is, given that you got it so badly wrong, on who the moderate opposition is. How can we trust you or any other Gulf-funded expert? Charles, I'll let you respond. There are a few allegations in there from, from Max, one of them being that your research is funded by a country or a group of countries, one of them that you had come to false conclusions in past reports. Do you want to address that? Because I think the, you all did actually clarify who you mean by moderate opposition in a very specific sense, but do you want to? Um, I'm not going to devolve myself and belittle myself to talk about funding of think tanks. Um, if I do, I can answer your question. All my work here in the Washington uh, is funded by uh, a corporation in New York, so I'm certainly not receiving Gulf funding. So there we go. There's one part. Second part, more seriously, about the opposition is, um, listen, I think what the, the picture you painted perfectly describes what we've all talked about, which is the complexity of Syria and how fast things change. Um, Zinke, back in 2014 and 2015, was not the same organization we see today. It wasn't. It had been successfully vetted by the United States. It, I, I, I knew much of their leadership uh, when I wrote that article, and not in a million years did they represent the organization they represent today, which I would completely, and I have said publicly, does not deserve any kind of relationship with the United States or any of our allies. Um, its behavior has been disgusting. Um, the beheading video was horrific. Um, and I think that's, that kind of speaks for itself. Javed Shamia, um, I think you ought to read the article in the Financial Times again a little bit more closely and focus on the entirety of the article rather than I think you picked out two sentences of a very long article. The gist of that article was actually saying that ISIS fighters were defecting to the opposition and that when, they came, when it came specifically to Westerners, some of these organizations that are powerful in northern Aleppo were selling or trying to find what they could get by giving them back to those their states of origin. Um, and then specifically, the line about uh, ISIS defectors going to Idlib, that's not what the article said. It said they sought to go to Idlib. And what I can say, having known all of the armed groups who are involved in this business and who've, who have been involved in these um, in this operation of receiving defectors from ISIS, hundreds of them are sat in prisons in northern Aleppo for one single reason. No groups in that area and no groups in Idlib, even JFS, trust ISIS defectors because there is an embedded fear of sleeper cells, which in, to, some respect, ex, uh, to some extent has already been shown in Idlib. Um, uh, so, the, I, I would encourage you to read the article again uh, uh, in its entirety and take it in its context. And, and remember, the first, the, the first people who rose up against uh, ISIS in Syria were actually people in Idlib. And that was the, 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 the only place where ISIS didn't, has not yet come back, uh, come back 
uh, it was very effective. People uh, in Idlib fought it, uh, declared war on it before Bashar Assad did and before uh, the war against ISIS in Iraq started. So it's important to highlight that. Look, there's also a reason why we didn't go through an exhaustive list of groups in the report. Um, and I just want to state this explicitly, explicitly on behalf of the group and, and in defense of Charles here, which is that the vision that we are outlining for an American strategy sets requirements in terms of what end state a given rebel fighter is willing to accept inside of Syria. And so we're setting the benchmark, are you willing to accept a democratic Syrian state that guarantees minority rights and these kinds of fundamental principles that actually originally defined the revolution. We purposefully avoided identifying groups for exactly the reason that Al-Qaeda intends to subvert groups from within, in many cases, and intends to dissolve itself within the opposition in order to obfuscate its full strength, but also to transform the opposition. It's a transformational agenda. Al-Qaeda is succeeding in that. So groups and individuals and segments of society are being transformed. Now, they haven't won, but we thought it was important to identify the kind of future Syria that we thought the, the, the Syrian people could accept um, and the United States could accept from a foreign policy perspective rather than identifying specific groups, which has always been a very fluid um, dynamic inside of Syria where groups dissolve and reform anyway. So, so there was an intentional reason behind that. We were not obscuring. Um, any assessments? Next question. Here, um, uh, woman in the sweater. Alex Breha from Being Up for Development. Um, a lot of people in Washington with the new administration coming in are trying to get their priorities, especially on a foreign policy level, in front of the administration. And, and we seem to have a pretty blank slate. Um, but a few things are starting to emerge, which is really countering Iran, countering ISIS, and a pro-Israel and then a mixed bag pro and counter Russia. Does adding countering Al-Qaeda really muddy the water here in Syria? And if it's important to add countering Al-Qaeda to this, how do you sell that to the new administration? How do you convince them that this is a narrative that's worth pursuing? Thank you. There's, I mean, there, there's no, I mean, uh, there, there is of course a need to counter Al-Qaeda in Syria. There are Syrians who call and, and you know, many of the groups uh, are, you know, are Syrians, uh, to counter Al-Qaeda in Syria. The problem is how, uh, and I think that's the fundamental, uh, the fundamental problem. Uh, and the only, the only uh, thing that has been done so far is uh, to announce uh, airstrikes against Al-Qaeda uh, in, in Syria without a strategy, and that's not gonna work. That's guaranteed not to work, because these groups don't function on the number of fighters they have, but on the effect they have, the impact they have on, on, the, popu uh, on the population. And the transformation uh, that Jennifer has just mentioned is real and is important. And this is what's really taking place, and it's very steady. Every time the international community tries something in Syria and fails, and that effort fails, uh, that, get, uh, that gives more credit to these groups and erode any uh, future chance of, of, uh, of that working again. Uh, so it's important to really uh, think about this uh, in terms of urgency, that uh, whatever needs to be done needs to be done now rather than tomorrow, and needs to be uh, done in a way that works uh, not just against these organizations, but works for the population in which these organizations try to establish themselves. I think also it's important, if we want to discuss a few details, first, um, since Al-Qaeda sees the fight in the Middle East as a multi-generational ideological struggle, we need to see it in that way also. That means we need to be supporting civil society in Syria. We need to be supporting local governance structures that are providing stability in Syria. We need to be providing consistent aid and support 
to opposition controlled areas to show one, that the international community is engaged and we haven't abandoned these people, which is part of the wider AQ narrative that basically the international community has left the Syrian people to die under a very horrible regime. And also we need to think long term. Our strategies can't be six months or one year or two years or three years. They need to be decades. And that's a hard thing for policymakers in this uh, city to wrap their heads around, but it's really a requirement at this point to deal with the kind of fluidity and horizontal movement of a group like AQ. Um, here in front, we have some questions. Here we go. Uh, in the blue shirt. There you go. Hello. Uh, thanks, all of you, for a very excellent talk. I really appreciate it. Look forward to reading the report. Uh, and I'm Shlomo with the Syrian American Council. And I wanted to ask specifically about uh, the two big Free Syrian Army coalitions uh, who uh, that still exist but do not really fight Assad. First is the Southern Front. I believe the last time they launched a major successful operation against the Assad regime. Uh, base 52 about uh, 16 months ago and then Euphrates Shield Coalition uh, which uh, uh, is doing quite well or decently uh, they used to be doing quite well now it's just decently against ISIS in the northern suburbs uh, and they're closing in on Obab but on the other hand uh, the rebel fighters there appear to say we're going to go and uh, try and free Aleppo and Turkey uh, has sort of uh, been against that the whole time uh, so what's the effect uh, of uh, the fact that these groups, which uh, clearly have uh, strong support from the West and from regional allies, are, have stopped fighting Assad? Uh, why did they stop doing that? And how does this affect the narrative you're talking about that they've stopped? I would start by saying the, the cases you describe perfectly exemplify the fact that the, the one, probably the one biggest weakness of the Free Syrian Army as a kind of umbrella movement today. Uh, and that is the fact that it is existentially reliant on external support to continue its relevance on the ground. Um, we can debate whether or not a stronger US hand, uh, a stronger level of US support would have had an effect on that. I think it would, um, but the situation is as it is. Um, but you know, Turkey in particular in the north has almost virtually every single Syrian opposition group under an iron grip. You, as an armed opposition group in northern Syria, cannot launch an operation without effectively permission, arms, and money from Turkey. Um, and Turkey's policy shift in recent months towards its kind of um, less enemies, more friends policy and seeking a rapprochement with Russia has had a kind of dramatic effect in terms of the ability of the Free Syrian Army umbrella in northern Syria to continue its fight against the regime. And what we've seen is, as you described, for a time, a very effective operation in Euphrates Shield, but that was in, in, inherently following Turkey's national security interests and not the cause of the, you know, the anti-Assad revolution. And then in southern Syria, we see exactly the same story. Um, when just before Russia intervened, in fact, um, King Abdullah in Jordan essentially uh, he reached out to Vladimir Putin. He knew that the Russians were preparing to intervene, and he wanted, Jordan wanted, and had wanted for a long time its southern border to be a more stable place. Um, and effectively, the Jordanians cut a deal with the Russians whereby southern Syria would not see the kind of intensity of regime and Russian air operations that would have otherwise taken place. And in return, the Jordanians would cut off the southern front uh, in terms of being able to carry out any operations in the south. So this is the reality that we have, right? These groups are there. The, the opposition controls roughly two-thirds of southern Syria, but it's just frozen. Um, so the capability hasn't necessarily gone, 
but the capacity for these groups to continue their offensive operations is either on pause, as it is on the south, or is on hold and diverted elsewhere in the north. That can be reversed. If the United States decided that some of these forces would be useful for other means, um, they could, uh, by, that, that dynamic could quite quickly be reversed. But Jordan and Turkey, for now, are calling the shots. Of course, if, if there's, it follows that if there is more US uh, involvement, and that would shift as well the, the calculations of the local actors and exactly. the reliance would be spread a bit between just Turkey and just Jordan and now you have the United States as an actor. But the South is, the South is a bit different because the South is frozen, as in it's not under regime attack, not really, I mean at least not in the territorial sense. But I mean, my belief is you know, as soon as things get a bit better in the North for the regime, that's, the South is next. Uh, either, either they'll have to submit or they'll have to fight. And when that comes back into play, then the same exact formula we're talking about in the areas that we all have top of mind, Aleppo and Idlib, et cetera, come into play in the South. Uh, and I think, if anything, actually, its proximity to Jordan is an advantage for, for this uh, strategy, provided <coughs> that there is a US Jordanian cooperation over it. And I think, uh, I, I, and I'm sure the insurgency as well knows in the South that the Jabhat al-Nusra, they're not exempted from the Jabhat al-Nusra problem, even if it's a manageable one at the moment. Here in the front row. Hi, uh, Elon Goldenberg with the CNAS, and thank you guys for this report. Um, I mean, I very much agree with you on the idea of civilian protection, as I think you all know. I've written a lot about that in the past. Um, but lately, I've been concerned that is this still a realistic political alternative, given that we have an administration coming in that seems to signal the least that the president-elect that there's going to be uh, a focus on better relations with Russia, any civilian protection operation that involves strikes or credible threats of strikes against the Assad regime means potential escalation with the Russians, or at least a danger of possible miscalculation there. Um, and then on top of that, you have this problem with the fall of Aleppo of where the place that makes the most sense to execute something like this now is Idlib, which opens you up to accusations of basically being Al-Qaeda's Air Force. So how do you deal with those political problems? And is this still six months ago, I think this made complete sense, but now I'm, I'm wavering a little bit myself and convince me otherwise. Can I, can I start? Mm -hmm. uh, I think in many, in many ways, if you, if you look at the situation today in Syria geographically, uh, you, I think uh, that, pro uh, that proposal is actually more realistic uh, than two, two years ago in, in some ways. Why? Uh, because if you look at the north and you know, just uh, what Charles and, uh, and others have just said, uh, the, the, the change in dynamics in the north is actually a, 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 it's a good development, uh, which is that for a long time, the south has been more disciplined uh, extremist organizations, whether ISIS or Jabhat al-Nusra, failed to domin uh, dominate in the south thanks to regional allies who didn't, wanna, uh, these, didn't want these organizations to uh, dominate. And suddenly, uh, uh, and the north uh, was uh, chaotic, was lawless. Uh, these organizations were, uh, the north, uh, generally speaking, was uh, heavily armed. You have the Kurds and you have uh, uh, many of the Syrian uh, uh, regimes, uh, fighters come from the north, whether northern Latakia or, uh, uh, or northern uh, Hama and so on and so forth. So the north was really problematic and uh, there was no way to, to deal with that because it was just, uh, relatively speaking, is, is, a, is a deep problem there. Uh, but suddenly, because of the shift in priorities of Turkey, you have a, a new opportunity. 
So the north suddenly uh, looks a lot easier, and Turkey has changed uh, its way of thinking uh, there. So there's a, a better a chance to work with Turkey to de-escalate the situation in the north and find a solution. And we've seen that happening actually over the past uh, three months uh, with Turkey and Russia working together to uh, you know, work out something in the north. Uh, and if you look at this, uh, the east as well, uh, you uh, now have more options than you had two years ago when ISIS uh, took over these areas. Every time you clear an area from ISIS, you can be sure that there are no Islamist or jihadist organizations there. They, they are planning to go there, but for now there's a vacuum. You can, you can shape that vacuum, you can fill it, you can uh, shape the, the, the kind of people who operate uh, in, in that. And uh, so, so I think there is a chance. There's a more realistic uh, way, uh, way to think about these things without going back to the early uh, uh, you know, goals of maybe toppling Bashar Assad or maybe establishing uh, safe zones. Really, just working out something there with a stronger uh, American leadership, you can achieve that. You can make sure that the South remains stable and the Assad regime doesn't go there, you can be, be sure that Turkey works out something with the Russians uh, in the north, but you need more muscle there to make sure that uh, Russia, uh, whatever Russia uh, promises, delivers. And in the, in the, in the east, uh, you need to work out also a plan for post-ISIS, where uh, people there live in a more decentralized, under uh, a more de decentralized, go uh, decentralized governance um, uh, uh, model, uh, and I think that's possible. That's even more realistic than two years ago. Look, I think I would add to that just to say that it would have been powerful for the U.S. to intervene to halt the bombardment of Aleppo or what's currently happening in Damascus. But those opportunities are now largely behind us. We do still have opportunities. And just because we missed some of the most powerful ones, I, I don't think the most powerful ones thus far mean that it is futile to pursue opportunities moving forward. Southern Syria is still a place where American support could produce a durable cessation of hostilities, even if only limited to the South. I mean, maybe part of what the US needs to explore is whether going immediately for nationwide cessations of hostilities is an attainable objective. But a halt to aerial bombardment, which does still occasionally occur, not nearly on the scale of the North, but a protected zone in the South within which Free Syrian Army groups are both able and become willing to defeat what remains of Nusra in the South, which is still formidable, and ISIS in the South, while messaging that the United States is here and that Sheikh Meskine, which was a town that the Russians basically destroyed in order to help the Assad regime regain it, despite the agreement with the Jordanians, preventing that from happening again in the South would be powerful. It would start to, to gain the U.S. with local credibility and local influence. I think the, the trick is just to break from previous paradigms of approaching this problem, engage with the 2017 realities, and then ask what's possible in 2017 divorce in some ways from what could have been possible in 2012 or until the present. Uh, quickly, I'll just say this other thing. <laughs> Long term, if this is a fight over ideology and psychology, leaving a million plus IDPs at the border in Idlib and Latakia in abysmal conditions where displaced you're- Displaced people. Hmm? Displaced people. Displaced people, yes, internally displaced people. With, with very dismal conditions in which you can be hit by a Russian bomb or a regime bomb any second of your day. Leaving those people in those conditions and then having people from Al-Qaeda show up and say, see, look, 
the international community doesn't care about you. We care about you. We came here. We're here and we're helping you. We're fighting the Assad regime. This is a long-term problem. And we need to be able to, to provide enough stability that there will be institutions providing social services, providing education, providing the capacity for civil society to operate and effectively push back against the ideology and psychology of al-Qaeda. Long-term, that's worth more to me than any perceived immediate gains that JFS may make when there's no longer airstrikes in that area. Yeah, very, very quickly, actually, the other part of that, you asked the question about what happens in Idlib and do we become Al-Qaeda's Air Force. No, th that war continues. I mean, this is what I meant by the beginning of the problem is the war with the regime. But there's another war. And that other war is something fought on a local level by people from the area who are invested in it. That's it. We have time for one more question here in the third row. Hi, um, my name is Samir Sharifa. I have one point and two questions, so please be patient with me. Uh, if my you brother, could be concise, because I do need to get yeah, everyone out of here. On one minute, 30 seconds. My brother, um, 26 years old, medical doctor, he was staying in western Aleppo, uh, doing his job as a medical doctor. A mortar fell in front of him, and he died just last month on, sorry, two months, November. Um, this happened under government control area. So this came from the rebel side of Aleppo. Um, my question is, first question is, we, we've seen um, a huge stockpile of weapons coming from eastern Aleppo. The Syrian national TV show it on the TV. And this is coming from NATO and from America, from different countries. Luckily, the, the Syrian regime didn't allow weapons to go to transfer to Idlib with the fighters. So these weapons stayed with, but it's a huge pile of mortars and other weaponry. They were with the fighter. My question is, how the United States make sure that these weapons doesn't go to Al-Qaeda affiliates, such as um, Jabhat al-Fatih and uh, Ahrar al-Sham and all others? Uh, my other question is, we know that the source of funding for Al-Qaeda is coming from Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and possibly Turkey. Why not the United States pressure these countries to to eliminate this funding for, 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 for terrorist organizations such as um, Al-Qaeda. Thank you. How do you traffic cop and how do you stop the funding? I'll start by saying um, on the weapons question, um, I think that the, the fear of the proliferation of weapons was one of the reasons why the United States has actually sent very little weapons into Syria. Um, uh, the Tau missile, the BGM-71, anti-tank missile is the only American weapon system that has ever gone to the opposition in Syria. And it only went to specifically vetted opposition groups. And this has been very widely documented. Every single, as a, as a condition for receiving those weapons, the group had to video the use and then whether or not it hit the target. So it's very easy to verify how much has been, how much have been used, by who, by what groups. Um, and the one thing we've also learned is that on the few occasions, so as of November, I believe, 2016, 1,030 Tau missiles had been used in Syria. And I forget the exact number, but 0.8% of that number had been used by non-vetted groups. It's actually quite a remarkable... It's a remarkably low rate of proliferation. And if we're looking at a policy position here, um, then to answer your follow-up question, um, Almost all of those vetted groups have worked, have worked in broader operations with groups like Ahrar Sham and JFS and Nusra before that. The one 
nuance to that is that on the ground, those groups are on the verge of being enemies to the extent that they very rarely sit in the same room as each other. So the kind of talk you hear in YouTube videos about brotherly unity is one thing, because they have a unity of a cause, fighting Assad regime. But the reality on the ground is they, all, they virtually detest each other now. That didn't used to be the case. In 2012, 2013, the relationships were friendly, and I would freely admit that. But the, the relationships and the reality is much more complicated today. So I would actually argue against the idea that the United States has been responsible for a mass proliferation of weaponry um, in supporting vetted opposition groups. And in fact, if you speak to the leadership of any of those groups, the one big complaint they'll say is the United States have barely sent us anything. Um, if there's a fault to lie, then it is in countries like Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and Turkey who have sent in weapons with a much more chaotic uh, freeloading, take what you get and use it for whatever. Um, and on the money thing, just very briefly, um, the United States Treasury has done a fairly effective job at designating certain individuals in co countries like Kuwait is the biggest. There are currently 10 individuals, I think, designated by the United States government for financing al-Qaeda in Syria. Eight of those are in Kuwait. One is in Turkey and one is in Qatar. Um, so the designation uh, effect has, has been of relative effect. I think there is a case to be made that governments like the Qatari government haven't done enough to crack down on those individuals, but at least we know they are designated and their travel is limited. Mm -hmm. um, also, it's worth pointing out that Saudi Arabia, more than any other regional government, has actually consistently not supported, with one exception, more of the, of the more conservative Islamist groups in Syria. The only Islamist group it has supported is Jaysh al-Islam, which for significant periods of time has been besieged in Damascus and incapable of receiving support. So most of that support has been political. Um, so finance-wise, um, I, I would exclude Saudi Arabia from your list of countries. Turkey and Qatar, absolutely. Gil um, both of them have very strongly supported Ahrar-Sham since the very beginning of the conflict. There are allegations around Nusra, but there's never been any evidence. But there's certainly evidence that Turkey kept the border open for support that went towards Ahrar-Sham and Nusra over a period of years. But I guess what I'm trying to say is the picture you paint isn't quite as simple as, as, you, as, as the one that you gave. All right, thank you to all of you for attending and for watching online and for tweeting and to all, all of our panelists, and I know we could keep talking. Of course, yeah. <laughs> um, and thank you very much for coming today. Thanks a lot. Thank you.